0: Welcome back to Ground Zero Fitness Podcast. This is episode number 39 with Seth Moldenhauer. So he's got, he's a, he just started to practice as an RN in surg, surgical, correct? Yep, surgical um, he's got a surgical ICU. So he's got a BS in sports medicine on top of that and spent time in cardiac rehab and as a personal trainer. So he's got a unique medical perspective to this whole fitness and health thing, which I th- is really a good thing. And it's fun to have that perspective in the Twitter space where we're all, um, talking about this stuff all the time. You know, he's grew up playing competitive hockey and dealt with a few different things like a hip surgery at the age of 17. And he found strength training and focused in on that. Now he's just strong and jacked. Like we're talking 500 plus deadlift, 400 plus squat, I believe a 300 plus bench So he's strong as an ox and, you know, overcoming that hip surgery and has the medical background and athletic background and has overcome some certain surgeries. So welcome to the show, Seth. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Glad to be here. Glad to do this with you guys. Absolutely. So Seth is a pretty busy man. He just finished school um, for nursing and moved from Denver to Michigan. bought a house, you've got yep. a power rack down in your basement now and everything moving up in life. I think you put a picture on picture on Twitter of your back porch looking yep. out where you yep. live now. So you're living the high life here a little bit, it seems like, working hard and busy. So we really pre- appreciate you taking the time to get on the podcast. Hey man, um, it's
1: my pleasure. I've listened to a few of your episodes and it's always fun to, to hear you guys kick it with the guys. So
0: yeah, yeah. So if you could just kind of start back at you know growing up in hockey and athletics, and then tell us how you went from there all the way to being an RN in Michigan.
1: <laughs> well, that's a that's a long story. Uh, I guess I going way back. I fell in love with hockey uh, at the age of nine. and started playing roller hockey. Ended up getting pretty good at roller hockey, transitioned uh, over to ice hockey after uh, representing Team Colorado for my birth year in roller hockey at a national tournament. I decided to switch over to ice, Uh, ended up playing uh, three years of AAA hockey, which is considered the highest level of youth, organized youth hockey here in the States. Uh, Through that, I got to travel all over the U.S. I actually ended up living in another state with a billet family. Uh, So being an athlete, being athletic and being in shape has always been, you know, a huge part of my life. Uh, that kind of took a sideways turn when I ended up having to get bilateral hip surgery uh, just before my senior year of high school. I uh, ended up having to take an entire season off of hockey, had 10 months of physical therapy, um, was on crutches for about four months, pretty much straight through. It was, It was pretty rough, but through that, I kind of discovered my love for the human body and the mechanics and how it works. And that's what really sparked me to pursue my first degree in sports medicine. Um, The initial goal was to become a physical therapist, which everybody uh, in my degree was going to go do that. Uh, And then I did some more research, and it was not a good financial decision to go to PT school at the time. So I started working as an exercise physiologist at a hospital, working in cardiac rehab, running stress tests, uh, checking EKGs and monitors and stuff like that, and then fell in love with kind of the medical side of things. Um, and that's when I decided to go back to school for nursing. Uh, throughout that time, though, I also worked as a personal trainer at a Globo Gym for about a year and a half. Uh, I'm glad to not be doing that anymore.
0: So heard that that's pretty much. It. Heard that.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Sweet. Oh, did you- so. Go ahead, Kyle. Sorry. How did you go from the part where you played hockey all the time to your hip injury? Was it like just constant stress or how did you get to the point where you needed surgery?
1: Yeah. So that was kind of crazy. Uh, I was 16. I was playing my second year of midget minor AAA, A. And at the end of the season, I had an exit interview with one of my coaches who had played in the NHL for many years. He was probably the best coach in Colorado, just phenomenal guy. Uh, and he told me, he sat me aside and he was like, Hey man, something's wrong with your hips, the way your stride, like, it's just not, something's wrong there. I don't know what it is, but it's not normal. Um, and I was also in a lot of pain in my groin area all season. I was taking, you know, multiple ibuprofen and Tylenol before every practice for, for every game for about the last four months of the season, uh, just to get through the practices. So, I got checked out by a physical therapist and I was, you know, expecting to hear, oh yeah, you're fine. Just a little bit of rehab or whatever. We'll fix you up. And the uh, PT actually worked with the surgeon and then they got me into the surgeon the next day. And they're like, yeah, you need to take a look at this kid. So that's, uh, <laughs> it kind of happened real quick. I went from finding out that I needed to have surgery to actually having surgery. I believe it was about two and a half, three weeks.
2: Wow. So it was and- real quick. What was seventeen-year-old Seth thinking at that moment? <laughs> uh, it was pretty rough, man.
1: Like all I had ever really thought about was trying to get a D one scholarship to play hockey, and that was. I don't know that I would have been good enough prior to surgery, but I definitely would have had a chance. Uh, I was never, you know, the best player on my teams, but I was always competitive enough to, you know, uh, give a good run for my money. So it was pretty rough. I kind of realized that my dream of getting a D1 scholarship for hockey was probably, probably out the door. Um, But at the same time, when you're going through something like that, you, you kind of just, you know, you have the tunnel vision. You just think about the thing that's right in front of you. So it was, all right, let's have this surgery, get on crutches, walk for two weeks, have the other surgery, get back on crutches, start my rehab. Like just one thing after the next, there wasn't a whole lot of time for, um, too much processing. It took me a few years afterwards to kind of figure out what was going on during that time.
0: Let's dive into that like a little bit more. Just how many years ago was that? You know, Oh, 10. Uh, no, it was about 11 years ago, 11 years ago. So like, what I'm really curious, that's a lot for like a, like a 16, 17 year old to go through. It's like, what lessons have you taken from having that big surgery on your hips, going through all that rehab? Like, does that impact training now? Does that impact how you go about coaching? Did that um, really push you into the medical field going through that experience? I'm wondering what you've learned from it. Um many
1: different things. I mean, just being a competitive athlete with the coaches that I had, you, you know, you learn the hard work and to push through and, you know, never, never quit, never give up on yourself. Um, and that having those lessons drilled into me through hockey really helped get me through that time. Um, the biggest thing that I took away from it was kind of my love for the human body. And instead of just using the body as, as a tool for my athletics, I really started to dive into, the anatomy of my hips and what went wrong and how, um, you know, how the body functions as a whole. And I got, you know, I had a great physical therapist that I got pretty close with. I talked to him from time to time, even 11 years later. Uh, he was the type of guy that would throw on his, his shorts and start exercising with me and teaching me, you know, as we would go through it. So I really learned my love for the human body and how it works throughout that process. That was the biggest thing.
2: So that really got your start, right? In in all the exercise physiology, all that stuff was from the hip surgery or the hip injury itself.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I took a I took a year off of uh, school right after high school because uh, I had my surgeries the summer prior to my senior year. So I rehabbed all of my senior year throughout part of the summer and I ended up playing one season of midget major triple-A. And I took the year off of school. And during that time, I realized that, yeah, my dream of playing Division Mm -hmm. One isn't going to happen at this point. Uh, It's time to go back to school. And that experience of of surgeries and stuff and working with my PT and seeing, you know, the medical side of things, that's where I really just fell in love with it. Mm
2: -hmm. Now, does your hip still bother you from time to time or was it like a full recovery type of thing?
1: Uh, yes and no. Uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty full recovery, uh, but I definitely still have times where they ache and they hurt a little bit. Um, the biggest thing, and I think this is probably a product of of myself not doing everything perfectly early on. Uh, I have horrible abduction uh, flexibility, so people go into the you know the lateral the splits and stuff. And I, I have very, very little range of motion, uh, in that area. It doesn't seem to matter how much I try to train in that area. I mean, to the point where a sumo deadlift is like almost painful. Um, so that's probably the biggest lasting thing is the lack of mobility. Um, but one thing I have found is my mobility actually started getting a lot better when I trained under a load in a progressive manner, um, yeah. kind of roping it into training. I, you know, being a hockey player and, you know, you have great coaches and stuff, but they don't know strength training. So you're doing, you know, quarter squats, you're, you're doing deadlifts with way more weight than you should be, you're leg pressing all the plates in the thing, but you're, you have no range of motion. Um, so learning to actually train properly has helped my range of motion increase drastically.
2: We got a question more towards hockey. Because I, yeah. I did go to a school, a high school that was pretty hockey oriented and, and they did a lot of things to make sure that kids knew what they were doing and all that stuff. Hockey players usually have really tight hip flexors, right? Just from mm-hmm. the constant, what do you call it? Is it like sprinting on the ice? Because it's like short <laughs> shifts, right? 30 to sec- 60 seconds, you're in there and then yep. you're out. How do you... So two things. One, did that contribute to your abduction really poor range of motion and then two how do you go about fixing really tight hip flexors and all that stuff when you're a high school student playing hockey
1: so to your first question i don't know that it contributed that much i think it's more um, a product of post-procedural stuff me not doing um, the proper rehab. Cause I just want to, I, I didn't want to do the little stuff. I wanted to jump in and, you know, get my squat going, start, you know, doing the lunges and stuff like that, but not really focusing as much on the stretching aspect of it. Um, which now that I, you know, am a little bit more well-versed, I don't know that stretching is really <laughs> all that beneficial, but I know that's kind of a controversial yes. topic. Yeah. Um, as for staying loose with the hip flexors, Um, when you're skating frequently enough, a big thing that you just have to do is like dynamic stretching to warm up. Like your hip flexors are going to be pretty tight, especially when you're skating all the time. A big part of it too, is if you think about the motion you're, you're going from, you know, the posterior to the anterior portion with your skates, those skates are like little mini weights. You're actually getting a hell of a hip flexor workout every time you take a stride. Um, so there, you actually have very strong hip flexors, but they tend to be kind of tight. So a big thing is just dynamic stretching and really kind of loosening up that range of motion prior to getting on the ice.
2: Sam, you want to dive into that stretching thing? You looked
0: really excited. (laughs) (laughs) And here's, here's where I want to start with this is this is a direct, pretty, pretty close to a direct quote from Seth here. I didn't start gaining mobility and flexibility in my hips until I started strength training through proper ranges of motion with a load. Yeah. And I think that's, that's something that there's a couple of us. There's a few of us that are talking about that a lot said, Hey, maybe you, maybe your problem is the weakness in the muscles and not working them through a range of motion. Maybe that is what would fix your mobility issues and your flexibility issues, not wasting time going through a 30-minute hip mobility stretch routine. Um, so do you want to speak on that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, honestly, I, I was all about the static stretching, um, especially when I was playing hockey and stuff. And I know there's still people that swear by it. So I think it's still kind of up in the air. Um mm-hmm. But for me personally, what I found out especially, I think it, I think it really depends on uh, the type of modalities that you're doing. If you're, if you're looking for general fitness and you're just wanting to weightlift or power lift or whatever, I don't know the f- general flexibility is really that big of an issue. If you're a competitive athlete, you probably need to add some of that in there, um, you know, especially like if you're a goalie going into the splits all the time, you want to be used to getting in and out of that. Um, But for the general person, I think it's really important to just realize that training properly under load is creating that range of motion. Um, And sitting there doing a static stretch, you know, trying to reach and grab your toes with a completely rounded back to take all the pressure off your hamstrings is really not helping you develop your hamstring flexibility. You're just screwing up your lower back because you're arching the hell out of it. So it's much more beneficial to do, you know, a stiff leg deadlift and progress that through a proper range of motion, increase the weight as possible. And that's really going to get you, you know, more flexible in those hamstrings. You're going to also become stronger in that range of motion, as opposed to stretching where you're not really going to get any stronger at the, at the length of that stretching, uh, whatever modality you're using. Um, so I think that, For a general person, it's really important to train properly under the load and stop wasting as much time with static stretching. I think some dynamic stretching is before before a lift is probably okay just to get the blood flowing, but even that I've dropped off with a lot in the last couple of years as I've kind of learned my body and stuff.
0: I want everybody to go back and re-listen to those two minutes of that explanation (laughs) right there. (laughs) That's good stuff. Yeah. I just, that's kind of how I've gone with my training too, is when I squat, I walk in and I start squatting with an yep. empty bar. And that is what warms you up to get, prepare yourself for the working sets instead of a 30 minute warm warmup. Um, I've found that it coincides almost directly. People who spend a lot of time stretching in the gym are the same ones that complain that they don't have enough time to be consistently going to the gym.
1: I knew exactly where you were going with that. (laughs) So
0: so that's my whole take on that. You can stretch if you want, but don't use that as an excuse then. Um, So, but let's get back to a couple other topics. Um, I talked in the intro about you having that unique perspective in the medical field. Um, And, you know, you've dealt with that, that hip surgery. Um, And you're probably dealing with people who are going through similar situations as that. Um, So, like, how would patients or um, people who may be getting these injuries benefit from consistent strength training um, prior to, you know, as a, um, what am I, I'm trying to think of the word here, preventative, like, you know, how how much would strength training be Prevent a lot of the things that you see your patients going through.
1: Yeah, so the big difference between kind of strength training, uh, looking at nutrition and health as a whole, it's preventative, right? So you're trying to prevent or you know negate the problems when they do happen. You know, you drastically reduce the the length of recovery. Um, whereas medicine, like I do at my job at the hospital, it's a very reactive thing. These people already have an issue that can't be corrected without a medical intervention, Um, and in my unit, we actually focus primarily on hearts, Uh, so I work very closely with open-heart patients, patients who um, have various different types of heart procedures, Um, so it's not so much grandma falling, but I have dealt with a lot of uh, those patients, and I know just from my experience of seeing these people at the hospital, you generally see two types of people at the hospital um, in their advanced years. You see the really frail older person who has a really hard time standing up, who they fall down, they shatter every bone in their body. They're just, their bone structure, their musculature is not equipped for um, the aging process. The other type of person you see at the hospital is the person with a BMI of 40 plus who has a hard time getting out of out of their chair just because they weigh so much. They're kind of a slug. They don't want to get up and move. Um, So those are the two main types of people I see at the hospital. Are there outliers? Of course, you're always going to see, you know, the young, healthy person with the anomaly coming in. But as a whole, the two types of people I see are either frail or they're overweight and obese. So if you kind of subtract in time a little bit, what's going to fix both of those things? proper strength training, nutrition, preventative medicine. so that's where I really think that the medical community and the fitness community kind of need to merge, um, which I know that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes with uh, you know money and stuff like that. you know if if people aren't getting sick there's no there's no job, but there's always going to be enough people getting sick um, so I really think that the medical community needs to do a better job of outsourcing uh, preventative medicine to people and really maybe not prescribing it, but definitely encouraging it more than, you know, the doctors who have had, you know, one, one nutrition class in their undergraduate degree trying to give a bunch of nutrition advice, like outsource that to the people who know the best. And there are a lot of really good physicians that do that type of thing, but there needs to be a merger between you know preventative and reactive medicine that just it doesn't seem like it's talked about all that much these days
0: There seems I feel like it's some... <laughs> sorry sam you want to go for it I, sure i feel like that's uh the the medical community and the fitness community they just butt heads yeah so much um And I'm trying, I've I've thought about this before. How, how do we get those two things to merge? Cause there are some, there are some physicians, like you said, that do a pretty good job of it. There's even physicians that, you know, actively train themselves and are probably a really good resource for it. But like how, as a whole, like how could we begin to fix that problem? Cause these are like some of the real issues that could fix a lot of things.
1: Honestly, I think it goes down to education uh, all the way down to childhood, high school level. Uh, I mean, they're cutting PE from schools because they don't have the funding or they don't think it's important enough. Um, And that is one of the most detrimental things you can do. Uh, There's research that shows that people who were an athlete or did some kind of physical training or activity growing up in their adolescent years a much higher percentage of those people carried on into adulthood. So by going back and cutting out, you know, PE and discouraging competitiveness through youth sports and all these different things that really, really does harm to these people because then they grow up and they have no basis to build off of. Um, So I think that's the first step. Secondly, I think kind of like I mentioned earlier, There needs to be a merger between physicians and quality personal trainers, quality physical therapists, quality, you know, chiropractors, depending on how you feel about that, like whoever it might be, it needs to be a more well-rounded approach to medicine. A lot of, a lot of physicians, they know what they know very well, and they're highly intelligent people within their lane. And the way you're taught in medical school is there's a problem, go fix it, go find it, go fix it the way you do that is generally through medication or through some kind of procedure. Um, and that's very conducive to the average human being because I say this all the time that, that humans take the path of least resistance. That's just how we're designed. We're, we're designed to not desire to expend energy, right? We wanna conserve as much energy as possible. So if we can just take a pill to fix our issue, then we're not gonna seek out other ways to fix it. Um, So I think physicians need to be a little bit more open-minded to when and when not to kind of outsource to strength training coaches or nutritionists, stuff like that. I think that also on the fitness side, there's a lot of kooks out there who say if you just eat right and train properly, you'll never have a problem in your life. And that's ridiculous as well. There's a time and a place for physicians, for procedures, for um, the medical reactive side of thing. But if we can delay that as long as possible, that's where we need to start focusing.
2: Yeah, that was a great response because you'll see there's there's two sides of it, which you just described. There's the people in in the medical practicing industry that will be like, they're just gym bros. Why, why would you listen to a personal trainer? They're only there to build muscle, build strength. What do they know about anything about, like staying healthy. And then you've got the gym bro mentality of doctors, why are you giving all this reactive, reactive procedures? Why, why is there nothing that talks about the preventative measures to making your life better? And then there's this constant battle between one another. And and sometimes you do see it. You see it online where certain practitioners will hate on the personal training industry. And then the personal training industry, you'll see tweets all the time saying, saying something like, Doctors, why are you not doing your job? Why are you not giving any preventative measures? And it's like everyone, everyone has their own specialties. Like doctors are good at the reactive stuff, but yeah. they're not so good at the preventative stuff. And if you're you're so right about that, if they just work together, maybe stop butting heads and decide that they're both useful, they can be used together to achieve the macro goal of just staying healthy, then it should be prioritized.
0: Maybe we need like a PhD in like gym bro doctors. (laughs) Like make that a degree, you know? And it's, you have to have a, you know, two times body weight deadlift. You have to have a one and a half times body weight bench. You have to have a two times body weight squat. And that's one of the graduation requirements to be a doctor from there. Like, I wonder, I wonder if that, if we could get that going on a macro scale, what would that look like? What would the world look like? I'd probably be a lot
1: better than it is. I'd <laughs> be entertaining, all... to say the very least.
0: <laughs> What's it, what would it be? A doctor of bro science or whatever? Anyway. Um, I think Twitter already
1: was... has a few of those.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah they do. Self-proclaimed, yeah. which is just... Could be a good or a bad thing. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you actually kind of answered one of our, one of our questions there, um, from the medical side, I I really like having that perspective and was interested there. So, um, I know you let's talk a little bit more about training though. I know you started back as a hockey player lifting and you had your hockey coaches telling you what to do. So like what were some of those things that you started doing there as a beginner? Um, and what were some big mistakes that you made?
1: Um, it's kind of hard to, so when you're training as an athlete versus training for general strength, there are two completely different, uh, goals, right? So for the sure. end outcome needs to be evaluated and deciding how to train. Um, so overall, I think our training probably was pretty good for, uh, hockey specific activities, although I wish that they would have built a foundation of strength on it first, uh, and then transitioned into that. Uh, A lot of the big mistakes really came after I quit playing hockey competitively and went to get my first undergraduate degree. I'd go to the campus rec center, which was just, it's a beautiful, up at Colorado State, it's beautiful campus rec center. Um, And I would go six, seven days a week, hit, you know, I'd train the same way I did for hockey, except maybe, you know, a little more bro type stuff, maybe some more curls, some more bench, stuff like that. And I was in great shape overall, great cardiovascular shape, low body fat percentage, but my lifts like they would just max out, you know, I maxed out, you know, 315 deadlift, 275 squat, 225 bench for maybe one or two, you know, and I just could never get past that. And while I was in school, I start, you know, I started researching on my own. I took kinesiology courses. I actually ended up dissecting a cadaver and learning, you know, the origins and insertions of muscles really well and how the body moves. So I started researching more on my own and uh, came across, you know, the starting strength method. And that's when I started to just implement that. And I had been, you know, a high level athlete for many, many, many years, but I didn't have that foundation of strength. And when I followed that three by five to a T for a few months, my lifts skyrocketed. Uh, so my the biggest mistake that I made early on was just not having the knowledge base of how to build strength. I was still training as if I was a as if I was an athlete, but I wanted to put on you know size and strength, and it just wasn't happening. Um, so once I finally realized how to train properly for strength, everything started to kind of fall into place.
2: I've seen a lot more athletes these days in in high school and they, they really rush that process of building the foundation and they'll just completely skip that, right? You'll see really ugly squats in the weight room. You'll see really ugly cleans and people are just not worrying about the foundations of doing an exercise properly before progressive overload. When you go into that, as a high school student, you may not know, but when you grow up, you kind of realize the mistakes you're making. Um, So I guess my question to you is when you were in high school, you were doing all this stuff. Was it the, was it the starting strength where you started looking more towards technique or was technique always a thing for you growing up?
1: Technique was always a thing. Um, However, it wasn't the most efficient technique. It was not bad technique, but it wasn't efficient Mm -hmm. technique. Um, but it was also very, you know, the coaches wanted to make sure you weren't going to hurt yourself on a deadlift. So you weren't going to deadlift heavy or you weren't going to bench press, you know, you do it from time to time, but it really wasn't all that important because, yeah, yeah. you know, you need to train your legs and stuff like that. So technique was important, but it wasn't efficient technique for moving good weight and actually putting on strength and muscle.
2: mm mm-hmm.
0: I think Sam wants to dive into starting strength stuff and <laughs> I mean we could, we could spiel. talk about it all day. We could talk about it all day. <laughs> I mean it's like Seth and I had a pretty familiar background. You know, grew up training as athletes and then I did the same thing, digging, how in the heck do I actually get strong? Cuz what I'm doing now isn't isn't working. And that's where I happened upon it just like Seth did, you know. So, um, and like he's saying It's not that before that you didn't try and train and have good technique and do it safe. It's just when you read through that blue book, man, it lays it all out. You know, there is a specific model and a specific reason for the way you squat, for the way you bench, the way you deadlift. And I'm still trying to get Kyle to read the dang thing. (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got it but on yeah. my
1: shelf over here. Dude.
0: <laughs> yeah, man. I had mine over here a bit ago too. So anyway, things like the strength training Bible, but, um, let's, let's talk a little bit more about, let's talk a, bit, a little bit more about that specifically. Um, and cause I push and push forward a lot And you push for it a lot. And Kyle and I have talked about it on the podcast. So I'm hoping that some of our listeners have started diving into it a little bit. And, you know, it's, I found it incredibly hard and I butchered the crap out of it like the first time I went through an LP. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know you went and had a little bit of a checkup with an actual starting strength coach there in Denver. And did you have any like weird realizations? when you went there and they started coaching you, like, was there anything that you just completely missed in your own training? Uh,
1: not so much that I completely missed more things that I just wasn't really aware of in my own body mechanics. Uh, I mean, you can film yourself lifting as much as you want, but you're always going to kind of favor what you want to see. Um, and the big thing for me, the reason I decided to go get a tune up with them was I was having some pretty, um, pretty bad hip pain. And I wasn't sure, like, do I need to kind of tone it back? Like, why am I getting this hip pain? Is it tendonitis? Like what's going on? Uh, so I, I went and saw them and a big part of how they explained it to me was I was having knee slide at the bottom of my squat. So basically what would happen is my knees would come forward. And then as I was about to come up into the concentric portion of the movement, my hips would come up. My knees would actually shoot back way too early um so they were they were sliding back and then that would put more pressure on my hips. And so that was partly why I was getting some of that pain. Um, so that was a really good thing for me to kind of get another perspective. Um, even on my deadlift they were pretty pretty helpful in that I kind of have a tendency for right at the bottom of the movement for the bar to come off of my shins a little bit um, and you know, if you're a lifter and you've lift, you've moved any kind of weight that's heavy relative to you, you know, that when you start lifting, you go into that zone and you don't, you don't hear anything. You don't see anything else. You're just, that's all that matters. So I was never really aware of that. I thought I had really good technique on that. So getting coached and how to sit back into it, pull my chest up even more, having somebody actively cue me on what I needed to, to correct, which I can do for my clients, but it was really helpful to actually have somebody do that for me.
0: For sure. I remember like walking into my coach and the very first workout I had been coaching people on this stuff. And if you read starting strength, one of the big squat cues is knees out, knees out, like at all costs. So I remember it was like a second or third warm up set. I may have gotten to like 225 and we were working up. And one of the first cues the coach says as I'm getting to the bottom of my squat is knees in. (laughs) <laughs> and my head exploded like what do you mean i'm i'm with a starting strength coach right now and you're saying knees in you know like what are you what are you even talking about i just remember being baffled to the point like i couldn't even squat the next like what do you mean my knees are supposed to be in Isn't it supposed to be out so here i was people are paying me to coach and i am you know coaching i've been training this way for a few years and yep. i had been squatting with my knees too far out like the whole time and it's just like holy crap and it fixed a few few problems there so I guess the message here is like um it's always good to have a coach's eye on you regardless yep. of how advanced or how good you think you are you're probably not actually doing it to an optimum level
1: yep and I think it's important to note too that if you're slightly off on your technique that doesn't mean you're going to get injured and you don't need to freak out it just means that you're not moving the weight in the most optimal way possible. because um, I know a lot of people freak out about technique and especially on the deadlift, oh, they you know, their thoracic spine is rounding a little <laughs> bit, they're gonna throw their back out. No, that's not how that works. It's actually, I mean, neutral spine is a range for everybody. And a little bit of thoracic rounding, you'll actually see in elite power lifters, it helps them get, you know, it shortens the the distance that the bar actually has to travel a little bit. So it's it's very individualized so people who freak out about just these minor little tweaks it's really you're not going to hurt yourself unless you do something drastic
0: for sure it's like the little hip shift in the bottom of a squat like it's not going to kill you right yeah yeah that's a big thing it's and that you see a lot of resources being and Kyle and I were just talking about this before we got on this podcast you see a lot of resources being like hey you need to have X amount of ankle mobility, X amount of hip mobility, X amount of your hips can't shift. You've got to be perfectly symmetrical with your, your shoulders and your hips and all of that before you ever even think about putting a barbell on your back. And I think that just scares people off because it's like it's putting the perspective that people are already broken or they're already dysfunctional before they even get to the actual meat and potatoes of the training. that's a big problem I'm seeing with a lot of stuff nowadays. Oh yeah. I mean, fear sells, right? So
1: if you can convince somebody that they have an issue and then you have the answer to it, that's how you're gonna, that's how you're gonna, you know, make your money. Oddly enough, that's not much different than what we do as coaches only I'm not trying to scare the crap out of people. I'm trying to say, Hey, let's
2: optimize your lifestyle. (laughs) Yeah. You see, you see it a lot with, I mean, yeah, Sam and I were also talking about it before, but there's a lot of fear-mongering, especially with personal trainers nowadays, where some personal trainers will even pull up studies and, and be like, this is the optimal way of lifting. This is the way you should be doing it. And it's scaring away a lot of people because they'll bring up like eight studies or like eight reasons why you should not do this, should not do that. And it's always a should not. It's not why you should be doing something so i know a lot of people who from the outside perspective that will think oh i've been told not to do this i've been told not to do that not to do that not to that to the point where they don't even know what to do like they're literally paralyzed because every coach that they see online or personal trainer sometimes will tell them this is bad for you that is bad for you and they're just like what's good for me then and there's, a, there's just so much fear mongering in that, in that little space sometimes that it may cause people to not even start because they're so worried about messing up in the first place.
1: Oh, totally. And I see this especially with the deadlift. I can't tell you how many people have told me, oh, I can't deadlift. I have a bad back. It's like, well, let me tell you, you should be deadlifting <laughs> and that will help your bad back. I mean, I know, I know Sam and and you, Kyle, you guys love going on Twitter, especially um, talking about that. You know, it's fun to see the responses from people, but what people don't realize is you don't have to start with a 405 pound deadlift from the bottom of the the movement. If you have a bad back and a decreased range of motion, you can pull from the blocks with, you know, the 10 pound uh, bumper plates. You know, you don't, you can shorten the range of motion, you can lighten the load, and then you progressively... Uh, lower the lower the blocks until you get to the floor start progressively adding weight that's what people miss out on when they say oh i have a bad back i can't do x the answer is you can do x you just need to do it properly and work to find the functional um, range of motion within your own body before you try to you know pull 405 from the floor and that's where a lot of people get hung up is they they realize they can't do it perfectly right off the bat and they say all right, well, I might as well just not even do it and just hold on to my excuse of having a bad back.
2: Yeah, very true. People will see the the number of plates you have on the side and then be like, holy crap, this is a crazy amount of plates. I'll never be able, not not just I won't be able to do this, but that must be bad for you because it's a lot of plates and they think it insinuates more lower back pain or whatever back pain they have. I think that's
1: that's a a little testament to social media, Instagram, especially like people are always showing their highlights. You know, you see somebody pull a PR on Instagram, you're like, holy shit, that person's strong. Like that must be either they're incredible or that's a horrible form. But what you don't see is the hours and hours and hours of pulling sub-maximal weights to dial in your technique to increase your, you know, your bone density, your, your musculature strength, uh, as well as, you know, your tendons and ligaments that become stronger progressively as well. So what people fail to realize, especially through social media is people aren't going hard and pulling maximal loads every single time.
2: Yep. Yep. That's a big thing. I think social media does do that. Sometimes It, it glamorizes lifting heavy when, I mean, I understand. Like, we're trying to show off our highlights of our training. Like, sure. not every training session is sexy. Like, we're pulling 70% of our maxes, 80% of the maxes, most training sessions. So you'll never see something too insane until that one workout where you're mixing – you're you're working heavy weights, like, once, once every two months, once every three months. Like, it's, it's very uncommon to be lifting heavy weights all the time. Yep. Sam, you want to – dive into that? Cause I know you love talking, talking about
0: the deadlifts as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's, we're getting a lot of, getting a lot of pushback on the deadlifts recently. Um, which it, I know you listened to Thane's episode, Seth, but that yeah. was like how we knew that we had been pushing deadlifts enough is when people started <laughs> pushing back on it. Um, yep. and that's, that's what I think. A lot of us gung ho deadlifters on Twitter, and that's where the pushback is getting, is people don't want to. It takes a lot of work. Like you said, you got to regress it as much as possible when you first start deadlifting. Um, whether that's from the rack just below or above the knees, and you work it all the way down, people don't want to go through that process of in that progressive overload and slowly adding weight, slowly adding range of motion to get to the point where they can deadlift comfortably. The thing about the deadlift is that it's hard. It's really hard to do. Yeah, you can get somebody and build some strength by putting them on a leg press really easy, and people can start building muscle that way. But it's easy to just put somebody on a leg press and and do it. You know, that's the thing about the deadlifts is it's more, it's about a system-wide thing. You know? every muscle, every ligament, every tendon, every bone, every your brain is all being used in a deadlift whereas some of those other exercises it's not. You know, it's a system-wide thing and that's why I push for it so much. Um and in comparison to a lot of the people that say you don't need to deadlift or you shouldn't deadlift or you're going to hurt yourself deadlifting. Um Typically those are the people that could never get over a 225 pound deadlift without hurting themselves. So anyway, um, we won't go too much deeper into that (laughs) one, but let's, let's, let's get back to a couple more topics. I wanted to, we we wanted to chat with you about Um, I remember seeing it and you talk about your wife a lot on Twitter and your relationship and you're kind of one of those like anti alpha people, which I love. And I remember Joel Lopez, he's the one that does the read your keys podcast was like, I'm not homosexual. I'm not heterosexual. (laughs) I'm not whatever I'm wife of sexual, you know? So I I thought that was a (laughs) tweet. That was a fantastic, absolutely fantastic tweet. And I'm not married yet, but I was like, you know, that's exactly what, um, we need more of. So I've just been curious, like how you're training and you taking your your, your training and your habits seriously, how has that like positively impacted your relationship with your wife and even your family?
1: Yeah, so primarily um, with my wife, it really, it really shows her that I have a dedication to put myself out there first, to lead by example. Um, I know this is probably triggering to a lot of people. My wife wants to be a stay-at-home mom and she wants to have the freedom to raise you know our eventual children uh, in the ways that she wants to do that and with that she needs to know that the person who's providing for her is willing to you know to step up in a variety of different ways not only in in you know providing money but also making sure that i stay healthy so that i can continue to provide for her and our eventual children and among those things you know getting good habits through training, translate to your work ethic at your job. It translates to your confidence in every aspect of life. And especially, you know, with my wife, I'm I'm setting the example, right? So I'm going first, I'm leading by example through training. And my wife, I'm actually ridiculously proud of her. Lately, she, um, during quarantine or You know, right before COVID hit, she started lifting and then kind of had to stop because the gym shut down. And now that we have, you know, the power rack in the basement, she's been lifting consistently again. And um, a lot of that she's told me is because she sees what it does for me and she wants, you know, part of that to be in her life as well. So just leading by example. And I I plan to do the same exact thing when we do have our our children is they're going to watch dad lift. They're going to watch dad struggle. They're going to watch dad push himself and they're going to watch dad succeed. And that'll be, you know, the frame of reference for my children growing up is they're going to, they're going to watch that. And they're not only going to watch that, they'll, you know, have some PVC pipe right next to me while I'm doing it. So training opens the doors for many, many different ways to to, to just lead by example and really um, show others and quite frankly, show yourself that you're able to overcome Uh, struggles through consistent, you know,
0: consistent hard work. Fantastic answer. Yeah. Um, That's something that we've tried to push on here a lot is like training. It's not necessarily just about muscle. You know what I'm saying? It Mm -hmm. can absolutely positively impact all of your relations, your relationships, your work life, your family life, And everything. So we always like to ask people that type of question, like, how is it actually impacting them? And it's cool that, you know, you got the power rack down in the basement and your wife's lifting with you and everything. I know Kyle's got his girlfriend lifting. I've got nice both of my brother's girlfriend, mom lifting, you know, so (laughs) it's just cool to like be leading from the front when it comes to that kind of thing.
1: Well, and even my, my dad who he, he was a bit older when he got married. He was 40 years old. Um, so my dad's a bit older. He's had a variety of heart issues. He's got Graves' disease. Um, he's got, you know, some health issues. And after his last one, his last uh, minor heart attack, he was having a really hard time, you know, with just his overall strength. And I got him in the gym. I mean, talk about somebody who he's, he was over, when he started, he was 71, I believe, never touched a barbell except for a couple of times in college. He couldn't squat without wobbling all the way down. Um, I've since moved away, but he is still lifting. I I trained with him pretty consistently for about three months, coached him up. And he's not moving big weight at all, but he tells me all the time, every time we talk, he says, you know, it's, it's so much better to be able to walk around and not feel like, you know, I can't do it because of my legs are too tired or just getting up out of the chair. I feel so much stronger. And I feel, I mean, my dad's a pretty vibrant 70 year old and I think um, a lot of that is due to the training that he's kind of adapted in the last two to three years.
2: Yeah, I think it's just so important to have a positive impact in terms of lifting and sharing it with your family. Obviously it starts with yourself and they have to see the results you go through before they're willing to take the stab at it but like seeing my dad also do it um he was he was out of commission for like a full year because he had a lower back injury he was bedridden for 6 months couldn't even get out of bed could barely walk um went to the hospital multiple times tried to get it checked up nothing really worked i got him on rdls and rows just started with that and it's it's great to see his progression now cuz now he can squat 135 for five. I know Sam loves his five. I know you do too with your starting strength, but I got him up to the point where he's doing a plate for five. And it's like the two years ago, the dude couldn't even walk. Like his lower back was so mangled, so messed up that like, it's incredible to see how lifting can have an impact, not just in, not just in terms of like healing the body, but also to see how, how much happier he is, how much he's incorporated more fitness in his life to this day he talks about like, Oh yeah, I can do like 50 push-ups in a row. Like, <laughs> he'll share those things with me because like it, it's, it's a talking point. It's another talking point. My brother lifts, my girlfriend just started lifting and it's cool to see a mini community you can build with lifting within your, your family, your relationships and, and the people around you. It's really cool stuff.
1: Oh, definitely. I was actually going to ask about that. Cause I know that you got your dad training as well. I'm happy to hear that, man. Like that's, that's awesome. How did like, how, what does he say about how his everyday life is different more so than like talking about what he's doing with the weights? I mean, you said he was bedridden for six months. How, how big of an impact is that on him to be able to, you know, just mentally get up and do that? You know?
2: Well, I don't, I never really asked him like how much it affected his life because I know obviously it did. Right. Sure. Being bedridden for six months, not being able to do the things you want, not even being able to walk without somebody assisting you. That's, it's really tough. It, and it takes, it takes a mental hit on you to know that you can't do the things you used to do. But now he's like, I, I just see it in him where he's, he's doing a lot of things outdoors again. He's, he's gardening. He's planting veggies. He's, he's just doing all the things that he couldn't do, which is really satisfying to see and it's nice to to see him be able to not go the route of not taking the route of oh i'm just getting old this this comes okay. with age i'm just going to take pain medication deal with it and go down the route of i'm aging he really took he really took the bull by its horns and was like i'm taking control of my situation started lifting all that stuff and it's funny to say but he's like 50 Damn, I don't want to butcher my dad's age. He's like 51, 52, 52. And he's the most jacked he's ever been in his life. Like it's actually crazy to say because I look back at his older pictures when he was my age, and he was like, he was that skinny, lean kid, really low percent body fat, but not a lot of muscle, just a lean kid. Now he's put on he's put on quite considerable <laughs> muscle. We used to make fun of my dad for having chicken for having chicken legs, but he's worked on it. And it's pretty incredible to see a 52 year old somehow build the most amount of muscle he's had in his life.
1: Well, and that just goes to show that, you know, a detrained individual, somebody that isn't used to the training. I mean, it doesn't really matter where they're at in life, they can see results from it. Um, and I mean, we call those activities of daily living, the gardening, stuff like that, that you mentioned. It's training you don't have to train just to be jacked and move a lot of weight you'll probably end up wanting to do that because it's addicting but quite honestly it just that little bit of training that he's been doing has improved his lifestyle drastically and it allows him to do those activities of daily living without you know the fear of throwing his back out again and being bedridden and he has that confidence in himself again and it gave him you know an outlet to to really believe in himself and work towards something, you know, something that could actually work. So I think that that is a very overlooked aspect of training that people see it as just gym bros and meatheads and all this stuff. Whereas every single person can benefit from training in some way. It doesn't have to be, you know, a bodybuilder or a power
0: lifter.
2: Yeah. Sam, I know you got your mom deadlifting a while back. How, how's
0: that been going now? She was an interesting case. Um, she's dealt with scoliosis for an incredibly long time and has she's always been really careful with the way she lifts things like even like just like lifting a box up off the floor the way she does it is just ridiculous you know what i'm saying like most people just bend over pick it up no it's like a you know like straight back and all this stuff so she was really like worried about lifting weights and how it would hurt her back and you know, that it would end up setting her back. And I think she's, we've, we've gone on a really slow, slow prog- progression and she's gotten up to a hundred pounds for like a set of five and wow. just like her knowing that, Hey, I can actually, I can actually lift this and I can lift it safely. I think it's done a lot for just general confidence. Now, when she goes to lift up her grandkids, like it, yep there's a little bit more confidence there. Like if I can deadlift this much, then I can pick up my, my grandkids, you know? So it's, it's, a, it's been slow with her a little bit just because you have to battle that. Um, and if I push it too hard, then she completely like wants to just stop. So like, it's been a fun battle of um, being able to do it. But, you know, she had kind of seen the way it had benefited me quite a bit. And I think that was the only reason she was open to it. Like she never would have walked into a gym and been like, Mm -hmm. Hey, I need a trainer. I want you to start deadlifting or whatever. Like she had seen me do it. She had seen me coach it and that kind of thing. And that's the only reason she really gave it a chance at all. So I'm like, I'm pushing, like, I can't wait for her to do 45, 135 for the first time here a little bit. And I finally got her, uh, she had just been deadlifting and then doing like some some elevated push-ups and that kind of stuff. But I finally found her a squat stand. So now she can overhead press and she can squat and she can bench press and that kind of thing. So I'm excited to like actually get her going on that a little bit, but it's, you know, obviously a slow process. Well, and that's something that people
1: need to understand too is training
0: isn't a quick fix. It's
1: a lifestyle and you don't want to push it too quickly for all the various reasons we mentioned earlier. And so the fact that she's, you know, willing to do that at, you know, at the pace that her body is willing to adapt. There's nothing wrong with that. The fact that she's putting in the work. And like you said, she gets to lift up those grandkids easier without
0: fear of, of messing up her back. Like that's gotta be world changing for her. Yeah, for sure. That's the, that's the biggest push for it. And, you know, then obviously she's, a, she's developed the understanding that, Hey, you know, the, the, the stronger I am, the the more I'm going to be able to do more as I age, you know, she's, she's yep. big into kayaking, into cross country skiing, but she was getting to a point where she was wanting to start. She was quitting some of those activities that she had been used to because, you know, she's feeling wobbly in the leg. She's not feeling strong and confident and stuff. So that's just been a big, a big change there for, her, I think. And I'm, you know, again, it's only been a few months or whatever, but a couple of years from now, where is she going to be? you know? Yeah. It's, it's just all compounding
2: over time. Like soon on yep. she'll make all these changes in her life, but it, it does take time. And the baby
0: steps are the most important ones to make anyways. So, so I- one, like <laughs> one, like moment, like I obviously talk about lifting and protein a lot. And it was like, it was like nine o'clock at night. And I was, I was just at home in Idaho. Um, and we, I had just done a lifting session with her. And I'd been talking about like, Hey mom, you need to eat protein. Cause you know, if it it was up to her, she wouldn't eat any meat, you know, like that kind of, she just doesn't like it. She thinks it's gross. (laughs) But, um, I remember her walking over to the refrigerator and then reaching in and grabbing a cup of like a cup of Greek yogurt and like looking at the nutrition facts being like, okay, there's, there's nine grams of protein in here. And then she grabbed another one and, like, ate them both. And I was like, yes, the behavior change is beginning. We're eating more protein now. I was just going to ask that. Do you guys
2: push – well, I know we all push protein, but have your push for protein actually affected the way your family or your significant other eats in the household? Short answer, yes.
0: Short answer, (laughs) yes. Yep. But at the same time, a lot of my family, like, you just think – I just think I'm absolutely ridiculous with the amount of like meat and eggs I eat but I don't know. I mean I know, do you like- have that problem Seth.
1: Uh you know with my with my dad he went from eating primarily carbs for the first 65 years of his life to getting, um, thyroid disease and trying to adjust things, um, in his diet to help with his autoimmune disease. And he started eating a lot more protein, a lot more meat. And I kept, you know, encouraging the red meat and he actually has seen huge changes in his, in his Graves disease, his autoimmune issues, um, just by changing his diet, um, along with some extra medication on the side and stuff like that, that she's taking. But, um, I've helped coach him up a little bit on, on the importance of protein. And then for my wife, she, she's the type of person that would just be a rabbit. If she had the choice, her favorite thing is green smoothies in the morning. I mean, she prefers not to eat meat, but kind of like you said, she doesn't really think she thinks it's kind of gross, but with how much meat that I eat and stuff. And I'm always asking her every day, like, well, how much protein did you get today? And she's like, Oh, not enough. I only <laughs> got about 85 grams today. And it's like, Oh, you're, I mean, that's good. You're, you're getting better at it. You know, she's, so she's actually paying attention to it for the first few years of our, of us being together. She ate very, very little protein and thought, you know, kind of same as you, like, why are you eating so, so much um, meat? Like, that's gotta be bad for you. And it's just, you know, things develop over time, but now she's, she'll enjoy a steak with me. It's funny. She actually, when we first started dating, the only steak she would eat was, you know, basically a hockey puck or bark, you know, like so well done that there's no (laughs) juice, no flavor, no nothing. And I grilled steaks the other night and I was like, how do you want yours done? And she goes, ah, make it medium for me.
0: And so it's
1: okay, okay. Starting to come around.
0: Now I'm even more life <laughs> asexual. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and she
1: put it down. She loved it. And I I think I I mean we had eaten quite a bit throughout the day, but I'm pretty sure that was
2: all we ate for dinner. It was just I had two steaks, she had one, and
1: that was our dinner.
2: <laughs> it's so cool how we're we're all able to make impacts in our family in and, and in our own separate ways. And it's it's just so cool to hear the different perspectives of how we did it because you guys you guys have already gone to the grams i haven't even gone to the grams like (laughs) i'll I'll mention you need to eat more protein like a gram per pound but like i just stress i just stress like if you look at your plate make sure half of it is a protein source and that that's all i say it's like if you can get half of it as a protein source you're doing well but <laughs> you guys I have really gone like, to the point where they're tracking grams. <laughs> and I
1: mean, a lot of it's eyeball. I mean, you know, you're like, ah, eh, this is probably a three and a half ounce steak. You know, once yeah. you once you've tracked macros and you've weighed food, you get. I mean, I I did that for a year and a half, and now I'm pretty good at just eyeballing things. So okay. obviously, it's not an exact science. Um, but yeah, every every meal that she eats now, uh, she's like, all right, I need to get roughly X amount of protein through whatever source it may be. And I think that, I think that that would benefit a lot of people, especially, I think it would help them cut back on the processed food if they ate more, you know, clean whole protein sources.
2: Yeah. It's that opportunity costing. If you're eating, if you're eating protein, then you're probably eating less carbs or less fat in terms of like processed carbs. Right. So it's, it's a trade-off that people don't think about, but if you do eat more of one thing, you have to eat less of another. So it's just positively a greater net benefit to people. Actually, Indeed. one thing I want to ask about is your dad has autoimmune diseases, right? Yep. So one thing I've heard about like keto is that it works great for autoimmune diseases. Not, I'm not, I'm not too sure about like body recomp because I know carbs can do the exact same thing for you in terms of body recomp, but for mm-hmm. autoimmune diseases, I've heard a lot of things about how it can be your solution to gout. It can be your solution to Graves' disease, all these things. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think that those are general statements that need to be, you know, individualized to the person. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that they can be beneficial. Uh, Personally, I love carbs. I eat a lot of carbs. um, So I'm not opposed to carbs in any way. But my dad went, pretty much keto. Um, not quite, but I mean, he wasn't, you know, tracking his ketones or anything, but his diet was much more, um, meat and, uh, fat based than it was carb based. And he noticed a huge, uh, difference by cutting out those carbs. Um, and even my wife has an autoimmune disease. She has celiac. Uh, so she's allergic, allergic. She's not and it's not like an anaphylactic allergy. She's not going to die from it. If she gets it, it causes all kinds of um, gut havoc uh, to ingest gluten. So she still eats carbs in the form of like potatoes and vegetables and stuff, but she's dropped off a lot of the rice. She obviously doesn't eat any bread, stuff like that. And that is actually very helpful for her with her gut health to get rid of some of the, those types of carbs as well. Um, I know that people with epilepsy, uh, keto has actually shown to be very helpful for whatever reason. They're not entirely sure why, but it, it can actually help patients with epilepsy, which is pretty interesting.
2: It's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. yeah, that's good stuff.
0: Keto speaking of, you know, I think I find keto to be really controversial. Um, so let's, let's end this in this thing with a few controversial Twitter topics. <laughs> um, and the first one we actually, you actually tweeted on a couple days ago was the diet soda. Um, a lot of people say like, aspartame and diet soda, that shit is poison. You should never drink it. So what's your take on that, Seth? That actually used to be my take. Um,
1: when I started getting really healthy, I, I mean, I dropped off, didn't drink anything but water, the occasional beer, you know, milk, that's all I would drink. I didn't drink any, any sodas, anything like that. And then I started, you know, doing research and stuff. And you realize that the, the claims that it's going to cause cancer, that it's going to cause weight gain, that it's going to throw off your hormones, all this stuff is done in, in labs. And it's at like a hundred X the amount that you would ingest. So could it be potentially harmful? I mean, if you're going to sit there and that's all you drink throughout the day and you have 60 Cokes, yeah, it could probably cause issues. Um, But just like most things in life, if it's done in moderation, I don't see how it can be an issue. Um, I don't know if either of you guys follow this gentleman named uh, Lane Norton he's yeah. got yeah he he's got a pretty good following he's pretty wow. controversial in himself but he had a fantastic post a couple of weeks back on instagram about this topic and he analyzed a research paper and basically just debunked all of the all of the stereotypes for um you know aspartame and and what it could potentially do to you uh and i mean you, you read that, you read some other research on it, unless it's at a very, very high amount, it's probably going to be just fine.
0: I've always been on the side that, you know, if you're drinking a lot of heavily sugared sodas, then you're going to have, you're going to be consuming a ton of calories, which means you're more prone to putting on fat, which means you're more prone to becoming obese or staying obese. And, that in itself, the obesity in itself causes a large host of health problems. You know, heart disease. They're more prone to heart disease. They're more prone to diabetes. They're more prone to all of that. And obesity is going to kill you long before any of the chemicals and stuff in a diet soda, if you're able to you know, keep your calories in check that way. So if that's going to be the way that you maintain your body composition and still enjoy some things that you drink, then I think you should do it. I completely agree. People, people, you know,
1: you'll see them, they're sitting there at a BMI of 50 and they're drinking, you know, pure sugar soda. And then they say, Oh, I, I don't want to die from cancer. It's like, well, they, you're on the, you're on the wrong track and it's not because of drinking, you know, switching to diet soda. If you, if you can become more metabolically healthy, by switching to a diet beverage, then I 100% recommend it. Obviously, if you can just not have anything, then that's probably ideal. I'll be honest, I love drinking a Coke. I'll have two or three a week, maybe some weeks, four or five, you know, I don't excessively drink them. But a diet Coke, it's, it's refreshing, I enjoy it. And in moderation, it's a lot better than like you said, pumping in the calories. I mean, I've seen people at work who drink just with their lunch, they drink six, 700 calories worth of a beverage. You know, they get a couple lemonades and you see the calories on the back. And you're like, if you would just switch that to diet lemonade, the amount, like you would probably start losing about a pound a week just by switching, like that one change alone, you could start becoming more metabolically healthy. And people don't, they don't want to see the big picture. They want to, you know, fear monger and look at the, the lab rats that got a hundred X, the amount that you're going to get. So that's yeah. kind of my take on it.
0: <laughs> yeah. One of my, like one of my first clients I had in the Globo gym, anytime fitness I was working at, that was the one change we did like nutritionally was switch to diet soda. Cause she said, you know, I drink five or six cans Ooh. of whatever a day. And you know, that's, 150 calories is probably in a can of soda, you know, you're getting 800 right there. So just by switching to diet, you take out 800 calories every day, you lose, I don't know, lost like 10 or 15 pounds over the course of a couple months like that, like that is one of the best changes people can make who you know that they're drinking sugar soda or sugar drinks, even like orange juice or lemonade, like you said, people for some reason think lemonade is healthy. Well, it is one, it is almost as sugary or more sugary than, um, a lot of sodas. Yep. Hold up. You said diet lemonade.
2: I've never heard of that in my life.
0: Yeah. Like sugar-free stuff Sugar free make it up
1: to Canada or what? <laughs>
2: I guess not. <laughs> I guess not. Or I'm just not in the grocery stores long enough to, <laughs> to see that stuff.
0: yeah yeah, they they put brown gravy and cheese curds on their french fries up there so i don't know (laughs) whatever
1: oh man i've i've seen some of the pictures of how you guys get your milk and your
2: peanut butter up there so oh you've seen the milk (laughs) you've seen the milk Eh? (laughs) wait peanut butter we we just get it in the in the container
1: Okay, because one of the people up in Canada that I know posted a picture of their peanut butter from the grocery store coming in a meat package. <laughs>
2: yeah. I have never seen that I in my life. <laughs> 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 but yes, we do have interesting milk milk bags. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's <laughs> Wait, Milk bags? Wait, you, you didn't about? know this, Sam? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so when you buy milk at the grocery store, you can either buy the cartons, but nobody in Canada does that. We buy, we buy it in packs of three bags. So each bag is like one and a half liters of milk and we each have a carton. So you have to buy your individual carton. Most families will carry one carton. And then whenever you need your milk, you go to the fridge, you take a bag and you put it in the carton and then you cut open the bag.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Then you take the carton and pour it out. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, back in college, we had a, we uh, we called a couple guys on the baseball team who were a little fluffier. We called them bags of milk, and then that guy never understood it. And now I know <laughs> light, bulbs. <laughs> light bulbs. on this podcast. Oh man, that's um, really cool. another one that's a little controversial, and we talked about keto a little bit already. Is carbs? I always like to ask the uh, fitness people about what their take is on the carbs and the controversy behind it. You have any opinions on that?
1: Yeah. Carbs are fine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) it depends on what type of carbs you're getting. though. if you're getting pop tart carbs or carbs through your, you know, your sugared up sodas, those are all carbs. Your body doesn't know the difference. Um, that's not a good way to get carbs. Those are not going to fuel you very well. They're not going to, you know, help you reach your goals, but if you're getting carbs through, you know, whole food, you know, you're getting your potatoes, your vegetables, if your body handles rice, I, my body loves rice. I eat a lot of rice. Um, even, even some whole grain breads are just fine, depending on how your body responds. If your body responds okay to it, there's no issue. Yeah.
2: You know, the, the more I've been on Twitter, I used to, before I was even on Twitter, I would eat like your healthy meals pre-workout. I would do like your rice and whatever protein source I could find primarily a, carbohydrate meal before my workout, right? The longer I've been here, I've been influenced by Francis. He told me to get on the milk and cereal wave and <laughs> <laughs> experimented with that. And I realized like, holy crap, like I found a new, <laughs> I found a new level of energy in the gym. Then I, I went even further. I started doing like chocolate bars, dried figs, and I'm mm. finding like Reese's peanut butter cups are the best energy for me pre-workout. But like this is this is all for training, right? Like to the casual listener, I'm not telling you to to like overdose on Reese's peanut butter cups or chocolate, like the bad carbs. But if you use it in the right time and place, it can be very beneficial to your training.
1: Well, I mean those are very simple carbs that are broken down very quickly. Very and quickly, yep. and are readily available for energy. So Exactly. Um, I I've done that in the past as well. One of my favorite things is just pure honey. A few tablespoons of honey, uh, hits my bloodstream, gets me good energy. What people need to understand is nobody eats a perfect diet. I'm of the opinion that if you eat about 80 to 85% of your diet healthy, you're in really good shape. And, it's okay to have that stuff from time to time. It's not going to kill you. And especially if you use it the way Kyle was describing, you know, pre-workout, use it for a purpose. You can enjoy that sugar cereal or a couple of pieces of candy or whatever, and then you burn it off right away. Um, I think people also need to understand that the amount of calories you burn during training does not equate to the amount like of nothing. calories that you <laughs> want to ingest. Yeah. A lot of people eat a candy bar and it's six, 700 calories. And they're like, Oh, I'll just go work out. It's like, yeah, during your training session, you probably only burned three to 450 calories, depending on what you were doing. Um, so that's good to keep in mind, you know, just the overall energy balance equation in your head of, okay, what am I burning
2: versus what am I actually intaking? Mm -hmm. Yeah. People get caught up in the, the Apple watch calorie watching all the time. And it's, it's not really accurate, first of all. And second of all, like if you're training or if you're exercising and your main focus is on calorie deficit or like the calorie equation, then you're probably not training for the right reason or exercising for the right reason. You should be paying attention to your diet and your weight in the kitchen and the gym or your training should be primarily focused on whatever your goals are, whether it's to become a better athlete or build more muscle to prevent injuries in the future.
0: Well said, I completely agree with that. I think we've got, let's see, we'll talk about one last one. And here on like the Twitter and in the fitness space, something, there's a lot of coaches and influencers (laughs) who, they're all about their shirtless picks and their huge lifts and their, you should be doing it my way this way. And that, kind of got me thinking yesterday when I ran that poll of, we should throw a Twitter fitness guru event mm-hmm. you know, where all of us coaches are gifted a 42 year old overweight soccer mom. And we have to teach them how to barbell squat effectively within five minutes. And I think that's a good way of weeding out whether somebody's a good coach or not, regardless of their shirtless picks or their 900 pound deadlifts. Um, you know, and I think like, This was the topic that it comes up a lot of your coach or the fitness trainer must be able to do X or must have a six pack or must be 9% body fat in order to effectively coach people. And I think that's absolutely BS because you were one of the first people to jump in and be like, I'm in. I want to do this thing because I, I generally think that this would be a good way of weeding out whether or not somebody's a good coach and just how they deal with people on the platform. So on that, I think, first of all, you probably want to have a trainer
1: that practices what they preach um, just as a good rule of thumb. Same thing for a physician, but that's not to say that somebody doesn't know. Uh, their stuff. I mean, you can have an overweight physician that knows medicine inside and out and is the best heart surgeon in the world, even though they probably have coronary artery disease themselves. Um, So obviously you don't want to judge a book by its cover. Kind of the example I like to use is if you ran into Louis Simmons on the side of the (laughs) street these days, you'd probably look at him and go, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) He He looks like an interesting guy, but I guarantee, in five minutes with him, you'd learn more than you would from anybody on Twitter. Even though he yeah. doesn't really look look at anymore, you know. So, obviously, you want to you want to follow somebody that's leading by example and practicing what they preach. But that that doesn't always it, it's not correlation equals causation, right? I mean, they can still know their stuff even if they're not practicing it. And I think that the idea of okay, show somebody who's um, untrained how to squat within five minutes and do it properly. That would weed out a lot of people.
2: Did that be a cool challenge? <laughs> I, I saw the tweet this morning. I don't know, like algorithms suck, whatever, but <laughs> saw the tweet this morning and saw quite a lot of different perspectives on the topic. And I was like, I'm pretty interested to seeing who could be able to actually do that in person. Cause that'd be a, that'd be a neat challenge.
1: Well, and I kind of like the back and forth that Sam had with uh, JT and, yeah, and, Shane and Shane about, Shane, yeah. Like, yeah, like, oh, maybe start with a goblet squat. They probably shouldn't go right to the barbell. And there's a hundred different ways to approach it. And that's yeah. why it's a very individualized thing. Yep. You might have a 42-year-old overweight one soccer mom who could throw the barbell on her back and do, you know, squats just fine you could have another one that has no range of motion and you need to start with body weight, progress to goblet squat, progress to, you know, box squats and then go from there. So Mm -hmm. it's all, it's all highly individualized, but at the same time, it's cool to see, you know, everybody has their own little method, but the end goal is the same. Cause I would, I would definitely trust both JT and, and uh, Shane with coaching somebody. Yeah, yeah. exactly. For sure. It's,
0: it's all in the different methods. And I think, yep. Sometimes what I didn't particularly like about some of the responses was like I wouldn't have somebody anywhere near a barbell, right? Before they spend a few sessions bodyweight squatting and they spend a few sessions whatever. And it's like, unless they're unless the 42-year-old overweight soccer mom is extremely weak, I know with a technique bar or a women's barbell that I could get them close to getting down to depth based on their positioning, based on their strength within five minutes after taking them through a bodyweight squat, teaching them the breathing, teaching them what to think about and everything you could get them really darn close without hurting them. And that's where I was a little bit like they were, um, it's like the, it's like the gatekeeping to the barbell. Like you need to be able to do X before you should be using yeah. a barbell and like what's the difference between a 15 pound technique bar and a 15 pound kettlebell held in a goblet position you know so I, I that was that was an interesting conversation to have with people on their the different ways nobody's necessarily right yeah. but sure
1: I definitely don't like the gatekeeping of the barbell I know a lot of people are scared of the barbell and You get a lot of the fitness people that say, oh, it's completely useless, but for the general population, there is not a better tool out there. And the sooner you can teach them to use that. And quite frankly, even with a 45 pound barbell, make them do box squats until, you know, until they get it down, remove a little, you know, remove a plate from the, from the seat, lower it down, remove another one. I mean, there's so many ways to go right into it with a barbell that is going to keep them completely safe. And that's not to say you don't spend the first couple of minutes showing good positioning, um, through body weight or a goblet squat where they need to feel the weight, but once they know where to feel the weight on their feet and their body positioning,
2: you can throw the barbell on. Yeah. For that sure. that's one of the perspectives of mine that's really changed over time. <clears throat> I remember when we first started this podcast, I did preach the body weight. If I were to teach somebody to squat body weight, uh, goblet squat into barbell squat, but the more I've been teaching, the more I realize like it's beneficial if you get under the barbell as quickly as possible. And it's about different positioning. So when you're doing an air squat, your your back positioning is really different from when you're doing a goblet squat where you're upright to when you're doing a barbell squat and you're a little bit more further down. So teaching, like, I don't want to say teaching an air squat or a goblet squat are not important, but if you're trying, if your end goal is to get them to the barbell squat, I feel like teaching them the different positions of their back may be a little bit contradicting once they get under the barbell, barbell. It's just a complete different feeling of where the bar or where the weight is distributed, where it's not the same on your back as if, if you were holding it in front of you. So I think like when I was teaching my girlfriend, I, I tried to get her under the bar as quickly as possible. I started with a, I think I started with a 15 pound bar and then I moved up to the 45 but it's like the positioning is just so different and, and working with the box squats too, just so she knows the depth that's necessary and where to feel, where to feel the, how to feel the load down before you come back up.
0: And those were really important things to teach. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. The just having a good teaching progression for that can really help you get people under the barbell as fast as you can. Um, And like Kyle was saying, it's completely different. Just because somebody can goblet squat a kettlebell down to depth doesn't mean that when you put a barbell on their back, they're going to be comfortable there. So the best way to teach somebody with the end goal of having the barbell on their back is through the body weight style squat. And you're teaching them, you know, how to position their back, what the, what the bottom position should feel like, where the weight's going to be on your midfoot balance, your hip angle, your back angle, where your gaze is, and all of that stuff. Um, and you can do that, and then add a lighter barbell on their back, and then they can know that way. Because, like you said, if you all of a sudden add the load to the front, then it's going to be it's going to mess them up when they all of a sudden have something on their back. Um, so cool. It was it's cool to see all the different ways of going about doing it, but. Yeah, definitely. That
1: was that was a fun tweet to read through a lot of the comments on.
0: <laughs> Let's see, what else? Do you have any other controversial topics that you would like <laughs> to bring up, Seth? These are fun.
1: Uh honestly, not really. I'm pretty I'm pretty straightforward with the way I teach things. And if people disagree, they're more than welcome to. I am I think there's an optimal way to do things, but that doesn't mean that there's one way to do things. So Uh, people who swear by body weight or swear by, you know, dumbbells only or just straight calisthenics, you know, like to each their own. If, if, if the end goal is to live a happier, healthier life, if you're able to do that through whatever modality, then by all means do it. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to teach it the way I believe is the best. And if we don't see eye to eye on that, I don't have an issue with it. You know, I'm, I'm all about, People just finding what works for them. And I think that's something that the, you know, the internet kind of gets wrong a lot of times is you have to speak in generalizations in a tweet, but then people get offended because they're an outlier to that generalization. Um, And when you speak in generalizations in a tweet, it's one thing when you coach somebody, you have to coach to their individual needs. So that's kind of how I see things. Yeah
0: yeah that's a big thing far too mature and nuanced (laughs) that's a big thing Um, though being like general
2: all all tweets are pretty general but we we definitely have a bigger meaning behind what we said yes it is general but like how much can we how much can we say in like a 240 character tweet right like there's only so much so if you got a great point there yeah for sure
0: Awesome, man. So we're rolling in on an hour and a half here so we can wrap it up. Where can people find you? You know, you, I know you do coaching. Um, you have got Twitter. I don't know if you have other forms of social media that people could follow you, um, and get re do you have any resources that people can download and use?
1: Yeah. So, um, you can find me on Twitter at Seth Moldenhauer, um, Spelling's kind of weird, so you'll probably see me pop up from time to time if you follow either of these guys. Um, my link and my Twitter can take you to uh, kind of my landing page where I've got some programs you can download, you can apply to to be coached by me individually, uh, as well as like my Instagram and stuff like that. But honestly, Twitter is the best place to find me at at this point.
0: Awesome, man. Well, we really appreciate you coming on, taking the time. I know you're a, a busy guy. So this is a good conversation.
1: It It was a great conversation. I love this podcast. I've listened to quite a few episodes of you guys. So you guys have got a great thing going. I think, you know, teaching the general population step-by-step actionable advice is, is a great thing that you guys are doing. So keep at
0: it. Appreciate it. Thank you. And as always, you can find Kyle and myself on Twitter. And that's it for episode 39. We'll talk to you next time.